What's up, everyone? I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Best Podcast. So first of all, I just want to say we're not in our studio per usual. I am here in my kitchen in Brooklyn, New York, self-isolating, which means I took all of the equipment from the Thrillist Podcast studio and brought it here to my kitchen table. Uh, So, that being said... If you hear any weird sounds, feedback, car alarms, door buzzers, people yelling at me, barking dogs, sneezing girlfriends, I don't know what to tell you. This is the situation we live in right now. All right, so speaking of my kitchen and sneezing girlfriends, I am here with Thrillist Executive Travel Editor Killer Powell. No, we are not breaking isolation guidelines. We just live with each other. What's up? How are you? How are you? I'm good. How how's are you? Your, how's your quarantine going? That's very formal. Thank you. It's, it's going well. <laughs> how was yours? Just thought I would check in. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. In it together. In a studio apartment. Right. Not a studio. Studio apartment. So a little preface to this. We're launching season two of the podcast soon, but in the meantime, we wanted to do a couple quick episodes based around COVID-19, starting with this one, dealing with how coronavirus is already affecting the way we travel, from physically stopping us from traveling right now, to maybe changing airline ticket prices in the near and distant future, to actually maybe altering the way we look at travel in general. For the past 11 years, Calvin's son has run the Monsoon Diaries, a grassroots travel group that inspires people to live outside their comfort zone with fast-paced, loosely organized trips to areas in the world that aren't always considered typical vacation spots. He's also a medical doctor who is currently treating COVID-19 patients in emergency rooms across New York City. Here's what he has to say. Uh, What have the past few days, the past few weeks been like for you? It's been a little busy. Yeah. (laughs) Inside and outside of the emergency room. It's kind of ironic that I spent two weeks in Angola about two weeks ago, uh, leading a trip, and felt that my life was about to be more in danger coming back home to uh, New York City and the United States with well, this is going on because I have worked every single day the past two weeks. Oof. Since day 12 of 12 since I've gotten back from Angola. I landed in JFK at New York Airport on March 7th and I've been working every day since 7 a.m. March 8th up until today. And I have a few more scheduled just because there's been so many of my colleagues dropping out from being furloughed or contact with COVID-19 patients or just being sick from COVID-19. I've been filling up empty hospital and ER shifts uh, on their behalf at all the ERs in New York City. God, I, I can only imagine. So you have the unique perspective of both being a medical doctor and also someone notable in the travel industry. Can you tell listeners a little bit about the Monsoon Diaries, how it started, and what your mission is? The Monsoon Diaries started off like an accident. I grew up in New York City, uh, born and raised as someone who never believed that I would ever become a doctor or travel the world. And at the same time, I was pressured by both my tiger parents to become a doctor. (laughs) So up until I was 18 years old, that's what I was forced to be, even though I didn't want to. And then my dad died of a sudden heart attack, and then my mom got sick with Parkinson's like a few weeks later, I was deformly diagnosed, and I was actually now free to make my own decision. And as difficult as that time was, I was able to form my own idea that I would never become a doctor because of that pressure. 
And cut three to four years later, I'm not only in medical school, but also traveling. How that came about was because in that year that led me to traveling, I lost a bet to someone that got me on a, a flight to Egypt uh, in the winter of 2010. What was the uh, bet? During one of the most, uh, well, what happened was I was bartending. So I was a bartender at the time. And just, you know, freelance per diem bartender. Yeah. And I met somebody, one of my customers, who um, I got along with very, very well. And uh, the next morning, uh, she offered to say that, you know, for me to join her on her upcoming trip to Egypt. And I was supposed to, you know, work a few more shifts and really not travel. So I was like, no, like, I do really like you, but. I'll just meet up with you when you get back. And it was so funny because I had two other friends also in Egypt at the same time. So I actually had her meet them right before they uh, left the next day. They actually all got along. And then we were out uh, the night before they were both all leaving to Egypt. And they were like, Calvin, you should come with us. And again, I was like, no, like I'm supposed to work, you know, if you shift, so they don't really like to travel. I never left the country. I don't really want to go anywhere. But they kept pushing me. And eventually I got to the point where I was like, all right, all right I'll go. They take us under $700. And they're like 2000 at the time. Because they're literally leaving the next morning. Wow. And I mean, it was like a, a, a half joke kind of a bet just to get them off my back. But then over the course of the evening and then the night and then the wee hours of the morning, they took my phone and kept refreshing it. And it was constantly $2,000, $2,000, $1,500, $2,000. And finally at 4 o'clock in the morning, last call, we paid the bill. I was like, Y'all have fun in Egypt. Bring me back a rock. <laughs> and then we refreshed the phone one more time, and it was $650. Wow. That's crazy. And, of course, I'm a man of my word. I don't flake. Anything I commit to, I follow through. So we bought it on the spot. I mean, it was also a really, really good deal. And being a party and freelance bartender, I you know, cut all my shits and told them I was going to go on a trip to Egypt because the flight was, was too good. And I got on a plane, and I left. They left a few hours before me, and when they picked me up from the airport, they were like, oh, my God, we realized why your ticket's so cheap. And I didn't know this at the time, but once I arrived at Cairo Airport, they told me what was going on, and I asked the audience what was going on in the winter 2010 in Egypt, the Arab Spring. Yeah. And I uh, was actually asked to leave with them, to cut my trip short, because they were all leaving. And, you know, they were like, you don't know anyone. Nobody knows you. You don't speak the language. You didn't prepare. You literally, you know, booked it last minute. Um, you should leave. Uh, they left a few hours before I did. But I ended up walking around in circles for two hours in the car trade station, not sure what to do. I was debating, like, oh, you know what? If I leave, there's a 100% chance I'll live. But if I leave, I also will regret it. If I stay, there's a 20% chance I'll live. <laughs> but I'm already here and I'm wouldn't regret it. So I ended up buying one-way tickets to Alexandria by overnight train and wow. stayed for the next three weeks. So you've, you've traveled in times of crisis before, obviously. I mean, first, don't get me wrong. The first week, I hated the idea of traveling. Like, the first week in Egypt, I was like, this is stuff. I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. <laughs> by the third week, I was like, oh, I get it. This is how I should travel. And I need to keep doing this. And when I came back, I made another bet whether or not I should go to medical school or not. And then I lost that bet. <laughs> And then I ended up in med school. And I kept doing it until I... I respect the way you're living your life. Just <laughs> off the cuff, making bets and losing and winning. Right. Just letting fate guide guide the way. 
And is that ethos kind of what you want to put into the Monsoon Diaries, your own travel company? I think that ethos of it's okay to not know what you're supposed to do. Just do it well. Like it's about how you do it. But it's about the journey. It's not about the destination. People were drawn to that. Other medical students, but also other residents, other non-medical people, other college students, that they wanted to sign on to that lifestyle of traveling without a, a destination in mind. The whole point is to just travel. Amazing. Totally yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, so right now, obviously, we're experiencing a worldwide crisis. Uh, did you have to cancel yeah. any upcoming trips because of the COVID-19 outbreak? Absolutely. I think it is not good form. I personally believe it is not responsible for anyone to travel during this pandemic. Mm. You are putting yourself at risk, not only being exposed to yourself, but also exposing it to other people. You can have this COVID-19 infection and be asymptomatic without any symptoms, thinking and feeling fine, which is great. But you might do okay. But what about the person you sit next to on the airplane or on the train? Or the one, the person that you meet while you know where you go to your coffee shop, you know if you can, right? You give to grant, you give it to grandma, right? I know the timeline for travel is so unpredictable at this point, and like the situation is changing day to day. But just from what you know um, and what you've heard from the medical community, and also you know as an avid traveler, when do you expect? So right now, it might be safe for people to start traveling again. It all really depends on what we do right now. Yeah. That's the scary part. It really depends on whether we can implement a paradigm shift in the way we approach healthcare and COVID-19 or the spread of COVID-19. If we are continuing in the progress that I am currently seeing right now in my emergency room in New York City, it would be at least a year or two before we even see a glimmer of normalcy return to the village to travel. Wow. If not at all. Wow. Uh, if not a complete collapse of our medical system, where it'll be many years before we are able to recover from such a collapse. Why is that time frame so extreme? Our healthcare system was already overwhelmed. We were already understaffed. We were already at capacity even before this pandemic was on our radar. Mm-hmm. Like our healthcare system all our hospitals are already 80% at capacity. Our ICUs are usually always full, right? And then you hit us with this pandemic. What are you going to expect the healthcare system uh, to, what they would expect them to do when they are having to now furlough medical and healthcare workers, frontline responders, because they've been exposed to the virus when they get sick? Who's going to replace them? Now, there's only 10,000 ventilators in New York State. 160,000 in the country. Mm-hmm. So that's including the ones on standby on storage, right? And a six-week pandemic, uh, a six-week window of a pandemic on the level of 1918 Spanish flu, which has the same amount of infectivity, you're going to need 90,000 breathing machines in New York State or 800,000 in the country. So we're only at eight capacity. That means for every Eight people, one will get a breathing machine, while the seven others will have to be determined to not get one. That's Washington here. That's where we will be heading if things don't change. And what would you say to the people that might come out of this saying, you know, they don't want to travel, they don't want to explore other cultures, they don't want to go to other countries? 
I'm not in the position to tell what other people should and shouldn't do. It's a kind of unfortunate that people would develop an opinion and prejudices based on an event that happens in human civilization every you know, generation. Pandemics have happened before. The 1918 Spanish flu, Black Death, Plague, uh, Ebola, H1N1, Swine flu. Like, those things are things that our humanity has been through before and overcome. And it has not affected our views and, you know, of travel and uh, re- reluctance to expose ourselves to other cultures. But in fact, it speaks to the need for more globalization and working together to overcome a virus that sees no borders or skin color or ableness or you know, any you know, identifying characteristics. But the one that the story that I want to tell and believe in is the one that is the one of hope and that this is a more of a mobilization for us to actually work together and not against each other. You need to be more curious. You need to realize that this is not a siloed an event, that this virus is affecting every country. And if anything, we're able to fight this the way we are now and be able to prevent this total collapse system based on the work that the Chinese doctors and doctors in Italy and France are, are doing. And the information they're sharing with us has been incredibly invaluable mm. this past week when I'm treating the patients with COVID-19. So we are preventing it encourages me to actually travel more and work together. And not just travel for leisure purposes, but now even for professional purposes, like realizing that this is that traveling and globalization is going to um, have more of a purpose than just the things you can do on your fun free time. Yeah. Calvin, how many countries have you personally uh, visited? It depends on what you count as a country. <laughs> so does Taiwan count? Because it's not recognized as a UN country, but it has pretty much to me everything that well, the country. What's a ballpark? <laughs> An estimate. It's a ballpark is extremely wide, right? If you want to count UN only countries, I think I'm at 148. Mm-hmm. But if you want to count countries, a country proper, so Taiwan counts as a country, Antarctica counts as a country, Greenland mm-hmm. counts as a country, Hong Kong counts as a country, then I'm at about 197, wow. 198. And all of that was in the last 10 years. So you've been Egypt to Greenland. <laughs> Not bad. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I think your your story is amazing, and I think when we can return to normalcy a little bit, we'd love to uh, sit down. I, I know you're in New York based, so even having you come into the studio and, and talking about something a little bit more lighthearted would be excellent. But um, I do really appreciate you coming on. People need you right now. They're going to be hunkered down for the next couple of weeks. They're going to need something to do, and this gives them an idea of the world outside and keep making stuff, keep producing things. Like Don't stop because it's just you know, is what can we keep people going? Like everyone's all about like social isolation and social distancing, which is important in the physical and medical sense. But like, you know, social interaction and mental health improves your immune system too. Yeah. Right. Calvin, thanks for doing your part and, and good luck to you during these upcoming weeks and months. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you. And yeah, let me know if you're missing anything. You want to do another call? Hope you're around. We'll do. I'm sure we will at some point, hopefully. Thanks, Calvin. Good luck in the all these stressful days. Bye. So Scott Guys founded Scott's Cheap Flights, which millions of Americans use to book super cheap flights all over the world. I don't think anyone on this planet thinks about buying plane tickets as much as Scott does. So we wanted to get him on the phone to talk about the lasting effects 
COVID-19 might have for travelers and how we buy plane tickets in the future. So if you're wondering why his audio is so good, uh, no, he's not here with us in my kitchen, although I would welcome him anytime. He's a great dude. Uh, he just recorded himself on his own end. Here's our conversation. Scott, you were on our podcast a few months ago um, when things were a little bit more lighthearted and we were talking about tips and tricks designed to find cheap flights, which is, of course, your full-time gig. Um, how have you seen your own business affected by coronavirus, by COVID-19, and what is your game plan as a business that revolves around travel? Yeah, thanks Thanks for having me back. And man, what a... Uh unexpected and uh, wild time that we're living in right now. Not only us as a company, Scott Steve Flights, but also as a country, as a world, this is, um, what do they say, uncharted waters. And so we're doing our best to try to figure it out just alongside everybody else and how to make sure that we're being a responsible company, um, not putting our members in harm's way, but also doing, uh, you know, performing the service that we're, that members have come to rely on us for. The way that we uh, have decided to handle this, we're going to be only sending deals for travel at least four months down the line. And so we want to make sure that we're not only sending deals for well in the future, when hopefully, fingers crossed, folks will be able to get out and travel again, but B, as importantly, only sending deals on airlines that are waiving the normal sorts of change and cancellation fees. Right. I wouldn't want to make any plans right now if I felt like I had to pay $200 to cancel them. So we only are sending deals on airlines that have waived those sorts of fees for the for future travel. And it's nice to see so many airlines stepping up and, and doing that, saying if you book uh, uh, flights now... You don't have to worry about paying a fee if you end up deciding to cancel it. Yeah, what airlines are doing that and how far out are airlines willing to waive those cancel fees? So most airlines in the U.S. are stepping up and doing this. It, it, it's really been kind of remarkable to see uh, the entire industry essentially step up and say for new uh, uh, for tickets that people book now. Normally, you know, this time a month ago, if you had booked a ticket uh at the time, it would have cost you know two hundred dollars, three, four hundred dollars. Sometimes, if you're traveling internationally, to cancel or change those tickets, and if you booked a basic economy ticket, forget it. There's no cancellation or change for any fee. So the fact that so many airlines have said we are going to waive that normal requirement and let you change or cancel it if you want to, is is uh, I think it's laudable. And I think it's really that, you know, they deserve credit for giving passengers that flexibility. I wish this were a permanent thing. And who knows, maybe it will be after all this. But uh, it, it's good to see the airline stepping up. Now, it is important to read the fine print uh, because not only does it vary airline to airline, but the way that it works is going to vary a little bit um, in terms of you might not get your for instance you won't get a refund in cash mm, typically okay. the airline will give a refund in travel credit this is the way that southwest has always done and this is the way that the other airlines are doing it as well so you know I, i'm seeing obviously prices are super super low even uh six to eight months from now does that mean realistically somebody could jump on one of these tickets and potentially get a for refund if we're still unable to travel in September, October. You know, fares are, are essentially at record lows right now. So we're, we're seeing not only some 
incredibly low fares, but especially during what were otherwise peak travel periods. It's a difficult time for so many people who might, you know, be worried about having their hours cut at work, might be having worried about if, you know, is their job even going to be here in a couple of weeks? What is the economy going to look like, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, for a lot of folks, it, 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 travel is the last thing on their mind right now. And I yeah, exactly. completely sympathize and totally understand that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's hard to even think about traveling right now. You know, last time you talked about this being the golden age of cheap international flights. And, you know, how do you think fares will be affected permanently? Do you think that we'll see fares being more expensive overall than they have been for the past few years? Will they be less expensive? Do you have any insight there? So I think it's hard to say definitively, but these are the different types of factors that I would think about in sort in trying to predict what's going to happen with fares. There are a few factors that will, I think, help drive down the price of flights. Um, that could be anything from the reluctance of people to travel. You know, the, the drop in demand means that airlines need to lower prices in order to entice more and more people to fly. And I don't think, you know, even if it were to happen that uh, coronavirus is uh, uh, kind of in the past or looks much better uh, three months from now than it does today, if we're if we're so lucky. I don't think it's going to be the case that all of a sudden everybody hops on a plane right away. I would imagine it would be more of a gradual buildup. Um, so I think there will be opportunities for a lot of cheap flights to try to entice more and more people back into the skies once it feels like coronavirus is behind us. Uh, two, oil prices. Man, I don't know if you've taken a look at these lately. I don't b- blame anybody who hasn't with with everything else to worry about right now, but they are essentially at record lows right now. I mean, it, they normally, uh, uh, 10 years ago, they were trading at about $150 a barrel. Right now, today, it's about, about $25 a barrel. Even, even a month or two ago, it was about at like 40 or 50, give or take. The reason why I bring this up is... Jet fuel is the number two expense for most airlines after labor costs. And so if they're spending a lot less on jet fuel, they can afford to lower prices more than if than if oil were really expensive. What could hurt the availability of cheap flights is if more and more budget airlines end up going out of business. Because one of the primary determinants on whether or not there's going to be a cheap flight is how much competition is there between the airlines on that route. And if there are fewer budget airlines or fewer airlines in general, that means less competition and that means fewer cheap flights. And so that's the thing that that's one of the things that I would be kind of watching and so concerned about from a cheap flights perspective. There's so many factors that go into not only airline economics in general, but specifically flight prices that it's hard to uh, uh, make a, a, a really well-informed definitive prediction about what things are going to look like six months from now, much less, you know, a year or two. But um, I don't, I don't expect that this is going to be the end of the cheap, the golden age of cheap flights. I think there's still going to be tons of opportunities for cheap flights uh, once, you know, as humanity have defeated coronavirus. But it, uh, a, what that actually looks like in practice and how it plays out is still to be determined. Right. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, you know, there's a lot going on and there's a lot on people's minds right now. And I'm not sure 
that travel and future vacations are on the top of everyone's mind, but it's definitely something that we're thinking about here. So I'm glad you were able to come on and shine some light on everything in your world. So we really appreciate it, Scott. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for, for, for having me on. And, um, you know, hopefully next time we chat, it's under much uh, happier circumstances than it is today. Take care now. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott. Thousands of Americans found themselves stuck abroad when COVID-19 swept across the world. They found out getting home wasn't always as easy as just booking a flight. We're about to call Grant Giller. He's a professional snowboarder who was in Europe for work all of last month and found himself, well, stuck until last night. He took a red eye home, and now we're going to call him. I hope he's ready. Hello? Hey, yeah, this is Will and uh, Keller from Thrillist. What's up? How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Hey. Pretty good. Let me just put on some headphones, because so, my phone sometimes fucks up. Sounds good. Yeah, so I went to Europe. Um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a pro snowboarder, and... Uh, one of my sponsors is a European company. We were supposed to have a, a team photo shoot in Norway. And then I had some other like um, snowboard work, I guess, lined up over there. Um, so I was supposed to be there for a month, just uh, between the Alps and Norway. Um, I used to live over there as well. So um, yeah, so headed out over there. Uh, I remember my mom, saying like, oh, you might run into some coronavirus troubles. And I was like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, boy, did I learn quick, I guess. <laughs> and how many days went by when you were over there before you realized that you should have listened to your mom? <laughs> <laughs> well, it all happened pretty quick over there. So I was uh, originally in Austria, and I did do a little bit of a, a um, like overnight mission in the the Dolomites in Italy, but at the time I went to Italy, and this is where it just like kind of started. And people are like, "Oh, you're crazy for going to Italy," but like I was like, "Well, we're not in an affected region, so it doesn't really matter." Mm-hmm. Um, and then like the first day was fine, then the next day we were like on the hill, and they're like, "Oh yeah, they're gonna do health checks at the border, um, and you guys should probably get out of there." And we're like what so we had to scramble from the mountain and get our stuff and uh roll back to um roll back to austria and then they closed the border like the next day and then we we're in austria and everything was cool again Started, you know going snowboarding working on some other like different photos and um and then all of a sudden like we we're in austria and then they're like yeah we're gonna close all the resorts um so no no more snowboarding Damn, so like, so everything's closing, and that, and that all happened within like, I don't know, three days, and then, so th- at that point, I was like, okay, well, if everything's closed here, then um, I, I should go back home. At, at that and, point, at that point, were you, were you more worried uh, about getting home, or were you just like, you know, there's not much here to do, and, and you want to go home? Like, what was the mood like in Austin? Yeah, yeah, I was just like, there's not much here left to do, um. And then, like, you know, the snowboarding was still open in Colorado. I'm from Colorado. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's not much to do. I don't want to be stuck here. It was just economically impossible for me because the demand for a flight now is, like, really high but also really low. So the prices were just like – I think I saw, like, a flight – one-way flight from uh, Munich to Denver was, like, $1,500. 
over ten thousand dollars. Oh my god! Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, um, I was like, "Well, I guess I'm not flying, flying back." But I did have a buddy, um, and he was driving to the UK, and UK was not affected by the travel ban. So, uh, like that night after everything got canceled at like nine p.m., we got in the car and just road tripped it like eight hours to Holland, where we could get a boat to England. Because I wasn't worried, but then as it, as it just kept compounding, I, was, I just kept being like, wow, this is more and more serious. We started thinking like about Austria going into curfew mode mm-hmm. of like Italy. And so we left and sure enough, like a day later, all our friends, they, they have like police in the streets and you're not really allowed to be out. I mean, you can be outside, I, I think, but you can't be in groups more than five people. And you're only allowed to go to the grocery store, yeah, the pharmacy, or the tobacco store. I think I was in a lucky scenario, though. So, like, had I not been somebody who was familiar with the area and familiar with traveling, it would have been a lot tougher. And if I hadn't had friends there, I mean, I easily could have racked up, like, $12,000 in debt just trying to get home off, like, 24-hour decisions from the government. Then I took the boat to England. And uh, stayed at my friend's parents' house, stayed there for three days. And then I got a flight from Edinburgh, Scotland, to to uh, Dallas and then to Denver. And that was last night, right? Yeah, yeah, that was last night. Um, but to be honest, I think I, I, like, was, it felt like I was on the run the whole time. And I was, like, 12 to six hours ahead of whatever regulations were coming, to be honest. Jesus. Um, it's like the amazing it, race. It, 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you get on the plane, and I flew on a 747 back, which is like the double-decker one, and it has like a lot of first-class seats. Mm-hmm. And the first class was like everywhere. Everything was empty, but we were all slammed in the back of the the like normal cabin. You get this, this sickness, and you smash a bunch of people into the back of the plane, like nobody goes in the first class because you didn't pay for it or whatever. Like, I don't know. Yeah, it, <laughs> super how, weird. How many people were on it? Just like a rough estimate. So the coach, the like standard economy coach, was probably only like a hundred seats, and I would say like ninety-five of them were filled. Oh wow. wow! Okay, so it wasn't a situation where like everyone had an empty seat next to them and you could stretch out. No. Okay. Not at all. Wow. So like, ladies, like some people are like super sick. Some people are like masked up and. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely r- not not like a containment scenario. If that's what you're worried about. Yeah, that's ridiculous that they wouldn't just take that precaution and fill those first class seats just to put distance between. Yeah, people. that's crazy to me. Yeah, like spread people out or whatnot. Yeah, whatever happened to a free upgrade, especially now? I know, especially now. Yeah. So, so you said people were visibly sick. Like, what was the mood like on the plane? Do you think, um, you know, it's it's hard to, I'm sure your tensions were a little bit high, but do you feel like other people were kind of on edge? Uh, yeah, for sure. I think I was like, I was not on edge really at all, but there's definitely people on edge. I, I just feel like I had been through so much running and, and, and stuff, and, but there was, like, the lady behind me was, so gnarly coughing, like just oh, really deep, oh, long cough. And, and you know, there's like a person sitting right next to her, and then 
So you flew from Edinburgh to uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, is that right? Yeah. What was the scene like when the plane landed and you? In uh, DFW, yeah, okay. my hometown. Yeah, Keller's from Dallas. Hey. <laughs> did you get a Whataburger? Not, was everything closed? No, I, I had a I had a ninety minute connection. Wow. Okay. Um, mm. Yeah. No, I'm glad you asked about that. I mean, customs was crazy. It wasn't exactly like how I saw stuff on the internet where people were just waiting in mass lines. But um, at the same time, I think I came, we came in pretty late at night, which I don't know where most of the international arrivals have been. Maybe they're trying to space them out. Um, upon getting there, you had to fill out an extra form, like an extra health form that says, have you been to China? Have you been to Iran? Have you been to any of the Schengen countries, which mm-hmm. is the EU? And that's like, do you feel uh, any of these symptoms? And then that's it. So then they kept, uh, then they're like, okay, well, we don't want everybody like waiting in line in customs. So we are going to hold everybody on the plane. We're going to deplane like 10 people at a time. Wow. So that was an interesting start. They opened the door and then there was a customs officer just at the, like, he's like, don't step off the plane until this, this. So we didn't step off the plane for like five minutes while he was just standing there. He's like, okay, you're good. Stepped off the plane with 10 other people and then you get there and there's like an extra like, I don't know who they work for. Like, I don't know if they work for like FEMA or like World Health Organization, but they take your extra form and ask you a couple questions about what, like what your travel has been, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, At that point, did you say that you had been in Italy even for just a brief time? Uh, yeah, see, that was the funny part. Um, they, it was on that box, like, have you been to any European countries, but it didn't specify Italy. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and, and then they only asked me in person, like, I checked that I had been to EU, and they only asked me, have you been to China or have you been to Iran? And hmm. then they asked me, do you have any symptoms? And I said, no. So it was like three questions, and they're like, all right, go ahead. That seems like a pretty easy process for somebody to be sick to get through. And at what point were you able to kind of sit back? You know, like you said, this you've kind of been running away from these border closures and, you know, the virus in general. At what point were you able to kind of sit back and take a breath and be like, hey, I'm home now? Oh, yeah, man, that's funny. So I got home. I got, like, I landed in Denver. I got on the Denver plane. and was like, all right, cool, we can make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got home. And I don't have a house right now because I'm in, uh, like, off in Austria and in between places. And so I got home, and then I called my parents to pick me up. And they're like, like okay, we're going to – we'll pick you up, but we'll leave your car, and then mom will get in the other – in my car, and then we're going to go home, and then we won't talk – we won't, like, visit you for 12 weeks. I was like, what? Dad, are you serious? <laughs> Uh, so are you going to be bunkered down in Denver for a little bit? Yeah, I think uh, I'm like up in the mountains, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think, I don't know, I'm still, I still think maybe, the other, I guess that's one thing we did talk about. I'm not sure if I got it or not. <laughs> like, I don't have any symptoms yet, but I definitely like don't feel like super energized. Maybe that was just because of the travel, but I should probably give it a little bit, go into the mountains where nobody is. Yeah. In the backcountry, 
and just try and enjoy, make the best out of the rest of the, the snowboard season in this scenario. Yeah, we're kind of uh, locked up here in a studio apartment in the middle of Brooklyn and uh, just talking to people, I'm really jealous of anybody who's, you know, lucky enough to be uh, sheltering in like a really beautiful place, uh, desert, yeah. mountains, like places where you can still kind of get out into nature and but not be around other people. It's, mm-hmm. it's yeah. a pretty good scenario given uh, the circumstances for sure. Yeah, definitely. I feel feel for you, New York people. <laughs> I uh, it's like it's like the uh, it's like the survival movies. They always end up leaving the city to make it to the wilderness. Yeah, it's great to have you on as like someone that has actually lived this and isn't just kind of talking yeah, hypothetically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I guess I'll, I'll do a little self shameless self promotion. If you want to see my uh, my YouTube videos, snowboard wise. Just my name, Grant Giller, and that's there's a lot of travel stuff that I've done, and then I'm on Instagram at Gills. Um, same thing if you're if you want to see how how it's been going. Uh, but yeah, it was cool talking to you guys. And I hope for the best in the city. Hope you guys can find ways to keep sane. Yeah, this was great. Thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah. See you later. Thanks, dude. All right, man. Stay Cheers. safe. Take care. All right, that does it for us. Season two of Thrillist Best Podcast will premiere soon. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And until then, we'll have a few more special episodes, so keep a lookout for those. This episode was produced by myself, Chaz Truslow, and Debbie Wong. Research done by Mia Fasky. This was edited and mixed by the very talented Dan Byrne, with big thanks to Jim D'Amico, Brett Kushner, Emily Feld, and Mangish Hatakudor. That's a lot of people, right? I mean, yeah, podcasts don't make themselves. Okay, we'll be back soon. Thanks for listening.